Hi, my name is Sean, and I'm an alcoholic. And that's the end of the facts. <laughs> All the rest of this stuff is my opinion, and I'm not a spokesman for Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not an expert on alcoholism. I want to thank the committee for asking us to be here. It's You are gracious and warm and enthusiastic, and it's just wonderful to be here. This uh, it's, this is very special to me, this, this conference, because... Uh, the first conference that I ever spoke at was this one. I spoke here 18 years ago. I did such a good job that 18 years later they uh, asked me back. <laughs> I, um, I'm responsible whenever the hand, whenever anyone reaches out for help. I want the hand of AA always to be there. For that, I'm responsible. And that kind of slammed home to me a couple of weeks ago. Well, no, about a week ago. At three o'clock in the morning, um, our phone rang at our house, and uh, it was the woman from the answering service at our local intergroup. And she said, um, "Will you talk to someone? Her name is Pat." And I've had her on hold for 18 minutes. I've been trying to get someone, and no one will talk to her. And I said, yeah, for God's sake, put her, put her on. And we clicked through, and, uh, and she was gone. And I said, if she calls back, patch it through immediately. And she didn't. And I, uh, I was stunned. I was stunned that, that when somebody reached out that, for 18 minutes, she hung there on that thread, and nobody would talk. Nobody could be bothered. And it made me extremely grateful for the Alcoholics Anonymous that I knew when I arrived, uh, because when I reached out, you were there. It was on April 24th, 1974, and, uh, and I was desperate. I mean, I just, I had destroyed my own life, and... Uh, And when I reached out, you were there, and you and you put your arms around me, and you and you dragged me into this fellowship. And uh, I got sober at a wonderful time in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got sober while we were still sleazy. Um, I uh, I got <laughs> I got sober when you didn't want anybody to know you were an Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, as a matter of fact, I was embarrassed to be sober for the first two years that I was sober. I, I told people that I was uh, that I was dieting. That's why I wasn't drinking. Uh, I mean, it was. I mean, this this was my worst nightmare being an alcoholic. I mean, all those church basements filled with smoke with those people you never would have drank with, and uh, I mean, it was just awful. And you know, it was before you know it was before fading stars put their recovery up on you know. On internet sites and uh, you know, <laughs> and athletes with six months of sobriety became role models for our children. <sighs> Man, I mean, I I mean, ooh, alcoholic, ooh, and uh, but something happened in my first meeting, and uh, and whatever it was, it has not been necessary for me to have a drink. Or drug from that day until now, and uh, and you know, whenever I look at my sobriety and I say I should be doing better, and I 
I should have a little more money and I should be, I should have a better job and I, I should have a newer car and I, and, and, and my kids should be more successful and, and, and I should, I have to stop because I should be dead. That's the bottom line. When you drank and used drugs the way I did, for as long as I did, you don't survive. I started getting drunk when I was 14 years old. I come from a Scottish-Irish family, so alcoholism is like freckles. <laughs> you know, it's just... I mean, we don't even bother to talk about it. I mean, it wasn't a secret. It's just a fact of life. I mean, you just... You know, uh, we had the odd ones that went over the edge. They had the failing, we called it. And... Uh, You know, and and everybody just got bombed and sang and fought, and uh, and that was a party. And uh, so, when it came time for I, I went to a Catholic boys' school. There were four of us that kind of hung out e with each other: Danny and Evars and Lou and me. And uh, we went to a Catholic boys' school, and on the other side of town was a Catholic girls' school. So we had dances together, which uh, were stressful when I was 14. Um, I thought they were uniquely stressful to me. I didn't realize that they were stressful to everybody, but I, I, I mean, I've, quite frankly, I've never really been interested in everybody. I mean, I've just... Hey. Ooh, look at all those screens. How do I look? Not bad. I'm an alcoholic. I'd rather look good than feel good. <laughs> anyway, Lou and Evars and Danny and I would stand outside those halls and we'd pass around a little jug. Uh, Danny was this great big Irish kid. He had wide shoulders and narrow hips. I had narrow shoulders and wide hips. And... Uh, he had one eyebrow and a space in his teeth that he always had a toothpick sticking out of. He was a brilliant artist and an incredibly bright, incredibly bright guy and, and came from a troubled home. So he drank. I understood that. And Evars was from Latvia and, uh, Evars was this little guy who, 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 uh, uh, lifted weights a lot and, and, and he had, he had an ass like two coconuts, and uh, and those Catholic schoolgirls noticed that, and I noticed that, you know. And he could roll his cigarette from one side of his mouth to the other while he talked. He was incredibly cool. And Lou was 6'3", and pencil-thin with black, black hair and white Irish skin and piercing blue eyes. And I never understood why he was out there having a drink, because he didn't need to drink, because he could get those Catholic schoolgirls to do anything. And uh, I knew that was true, because he told us. <laughs> and uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't get him to dance with me or anything. I mean, I just, you know, so I needed to drink. And we all had dreams and plans, at least they did. Evars and, and Danny were going to go to college on 
football scholarships and Lou was going to own the biggest car dealership in our hometown in Canada. I'm from Canada. I was born and raised in Canada. That's up there. You, um, you, you may not know much about Canadians. I mean, you can describe French people and you can describe English people and you can describe South Americans, but it's difficult to describe Canadians. Basically, what we are is unarmed Americans with health care. <laughs> and we have real long winters with not a hell of a lot to do. And we tend to drink a little. <laughs> so anyway, we'd get bombed sometimes outside the dance and not bother going into the dance, and uh, and we had our plans and dreams, at least they did. I didn't have any plans and dreams because I didn't know who I was or what I was doing. I was a classic alcoholic. I was raised in an alcoholic home, and uh, I, had the, I had the psychological makeup that was pretty typical of every inventory I've ever heard and every drunk that I've ever known. I had a had a troubled relationship with a parent of the same sex. My father was just not emotionally available. He, you know, he just wasn't there for me. He was trying to survive his own disease, and he was a charming, quiet man. And uh, and when he drank, he sang. And uh, uh, but we never had a conversation that I could ever really remember. And I, you know, I've known a lot of guys who had abusive fathers and absent fathers and all that kind of stuff. It seems to be a thread throughout our disease and. And that's the relationship where you learn intimacy, you know. You tell your father you're going to be, you know, the president of General Motors, and he says, of course you are, son, you know. And he's the guy who teaches you a trade or teaches you how to play ball or any of those kind of things, and that relationship just never happened for me. And, and when that kind of thing is going on, a child never learns intimacy. And, and if you're like me, then what happened is that I grew up kind of being a free, free floater and, a, and an unwelcome guest and an alien, and I just never could connect. And uh, and the other thing that was going on with me is something that they've discovered in us that it's that we're extremely sensitive human beings. <laughs> and uh, but physically we are. We tend to perceive colors more brightly, to hear sound a little louder than the norm, and to feel pain a little more acutely than other people do. And and when you got the combination of somebody who's isolated and hypersensitive. All you got to do is hand that person a socially acceptable drug and you've got an instant alcoholic. And that's what happened to me. I was uncomfortable all my life until I was 14 years old and then I found comfort. Southern comfort is what I found. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved the way it felt going down and I didn't mind the way it felt coming up. <laughs> the trip was absolutely worth it. I was instantly able to connect to you. I was instantly able to talk to you, to dance with you, to do God knows what with you. And I did whenever I could. That first night I blacked out and threw up and I could hardly wait to do it again. <laughs> By the time I was 17 years old, my, I started taking prescription drugs and oh my, I love that because basically I was a lousy drunk. I got very drunk on very little, very fast. But boy, when you drop those diet pills or those little amphetamines and that stuff that speeds you up, you can drink all night. And so I did that. 
By the time I was 18 years old, I declared myself an alcoholic, and I didn't know that I'd done it, but I said the phrase that only an alcoholic says. I said, I can control my drinking. Now, social drinkers never use that phrase. Social drinkers never deal with that concept. Social drinkers never have to control their drinking. If they get into trouble with it, they'd stop doing it. But I started on the great obsession when I was 18 years old to control and enjoy my drinking, and I don't know about you, but I never got control and enjoy in the same room at the same time ever, you know. When I was controlling my drinking, I was miserable. I remember, I remember when I got into, when I first joined Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the tests we had when somebody said, well, I, I don't think my drinking is that bad, we'd say, well, just have two drinks a night and see how that goes. I think that's worse than Chinese water torture. I mean, two drinks a night. My first response to have two drinks a night is, how big are the glasses, man, you know? <laughs> and the only way I've ever enjoyed my drinking is wildly out of control. I mean, I just love getting bombed. Let's make no mistake about it. The reason I'm standing here tonight is that I love to drink, man. I mean, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the effect. I loved the ice cubes. I loved the, the, the toothpicks with the garbage on them. I loved stupid drinks and coconuts with umbrellas. I love it. I love getting ripped, bombed, blasted, smashed, wrecked. I love it. I'm the kind that's out there at 4 o'clock in the morning, stark naked, howling at the moon. Whoa! That's how I drink. <laughs> I have never sipped anything in my entire life from the time I was 14 years old till now. I'm a consumer. <laughs> I am not a taster. By the time I was 20 years old, I was a daily drinker. I decided I had a talent that the world couldn't live without, so I went to New York to become an actor and did. I had some significant success in that, but by the time I was in my mid-20s, I was drinking a quart of scotch a day, and I picked up a little non-habit-forming marijuana habit, and I was working the docks, the doctors. I love doctors. I mean, I think it's silly to buy drugs in alleys when you can have doctors do it. You know, it's just, yeah. I bought a medical book and memorized symptoms uh, for diseases and uh, went to talk to all three of the doctors, and all three of them wrote prescriptions because I found out something real early. Doctors don't know how to say goodbye. The only way they can get you out of their office is to write something. And if you give them the right information, they'll write what you want. <laughs> I owe a lot of amends to the medical profession, but to hell with them. <laughs> if they're that stupid, it's their own fault. <laughs> By the time I was in my late 20s, I was in trouble. I was starting to go to moral superiors with my problem. You know, I've always done that. I've always gone to, like, priests and nuns and Christian brothers and, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers and gurus and religious leaders and political gurus and uh, lawyers and judges and policemen, and I've always explained to them what my problem was. And some of them were very learned and compassionate, and they would say, this is what you should do about your problem. Well, somebody does that to me. I bite their finger off at the knuckle. 
But I was starting to, I, I knew I was in trouble, and, uh, and so I, I decided what I needed was a good woman, and I found her in an elevator. And, uh, and we got together, and we started our dance of death, and eventually we tangoed into AA and Al-Anon. And uh, she's here with me tonight. I, um, we, um, we've been together almost 32 years, and... Uh, <laughs> And she stumbled into Al-Anon three weeks after I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, she is a she is a member of Al-Anon. Uh, an Al-Anon is not merely somebody who is married to an alcoholic. An Al-Anon is someone who works the twelve steps of Al-Anon, attends Al-Anon meetings, uh, practices the traditions, sponsors people, is active in service in Al-Anon, and uh, and my life has been graced by a member of Al-Anon for a lot of years. Uh, we. Uh, <laughs> We've been married a long time. I once had a guy that I sponsored who said, what do you know about marriage? You've only done it once. <laughs> and uh, I had to concede he was right. I mean, what the hell do I know? Um, but I kept trying to do things to get well. I never stopped drinking, but I tried to do things to get well. And, uh, and on April 23rd, I was just, you know, arrested. You know, you know the drill, you know, no, no, no shoes, no belt. You know, you know the stuff. And it got my attention. And uh, and I went to work the next day, and uh, and I said to the woman that I worked with who was in the program, had six years of sobriety, I said, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, and i got 20 minutes to go before I go to pieces. And uh, and she stopped everything, and she 12-stepped me. You remember 12-step work. You know, when one drunk talks to another. <laughs> and she did that. She told me her story, she read to me from the big book, and she took me to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and it was exactly as I feared it would be. I told you, you know, it was at a church basement. And it must have been a real slow night because it was like being dropped into a shark tank. I've, I've never seen so many teeth coming at me, and uh, hi, and I just thought, oh my God. <laughs> You're real glad to see me, I know. Oh. I mean, I knew it was drinking, but let's keep it light, guys. You know, uh, and then you start talking to me. It was like being stoned to death with fridge magnets. You know, you were, easy does it, keep coming back, one day at a time, you know. Oh, man. And I got introduced to the guy who became my sponsor, and he started shoving the 12 steps down my throat, and, uh, and I was so terrified that I did what I was told, and... Uh, and, it, and like I said, it was it was really kind of crummy to be in this thing, this Alcoholics Anonymous thing. And I mean, it was it was great. It was it was before the medical profession and the insurance companies discovered we were big business, and uh, and so all kinds of interesting things would happen at AA meetings. Like guys would have grand mal seizures. I mean, I remember those. Somebody would be you know sharing his experience, strength, and hope, and somebody over there would suddenly go, you know. It was really great for newcomers because your sponsor. Your sponsor would say, see, keep drinking, you'll end up like that. I mean, it just snapped you right, you know, whoo, you know. But with these 28-day vacations, I mean, we never see them real new and wet anymore. You know, it was just great, you know. None of our newcomers smell anymore. Have you noticed that? And uh, I smelled the first meeting I went to. I had been drinking straight vodka the night before. It was a warm night. I had all lemon-lime cologne to cover it all up. I... I smell like a gimlet. <laughs> kind of beads of sweat, you know, just 
glistening in my first meeting. And I had newcomer eyes at my first meeting. The only other place I've seen eyes like that other than on a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous or on a dog loose on a freeway. I, uh, I was just... And I thought, well, we're probably, you know, we're probably going to wear like uniforms, like navy blue work shirts and navy blue work pants, and we'll probably talk at these meetings, and then we'll go out to bars and give people literature, you know. And you know what? If that's what we had to do, I would have done it. That's how terrified I was. That's how at the end of the road I was. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous hoping that this was it, because if it wasn't alcoholism, I was lost. If it wasn't, because I had done everything I could think of to avoid coming here, I'd been to all those places, and uh, and if it wasn't alcoholics, if it wasn't alcoholism, I was hopelessly insane. And so I started taking the steps. Now, the first three steps were relatively easy for me. I mean, <laughs> my life was unmanageable. I, I came to my first meeting in a 250, this is 1974, in a $250 sports jacket from Saks Fifth Avenue. I had on French gabardine slacks, Italian loafers, and a designer tie. I weighed about 155 pounds. I was 6'2". I looked fabulous, you know? <laughs> the only trouble with the picture was that I had fingerprint ink. <laughs> you know, it just... You can't get that shit off. Have you noticed that? <laughs> yeah, I love it. There's some head nodders out here. I love the head nodders. When I first got sober, I thought the head nodders were the ones with brain damage. You know? <laughs> you know? And Alcoholics Anonymous is what you try, you know, you, you give them a little, you know, you, you reveal a little about yourself slowly here. You kind of go, and then I did. And you look around, and occasionally the guy goes, and you go, oh, thank God. You know, oh, there's one other. We had a we had a we had a men's group in LA. I got sober in Hollywood, of course. I mean, that's where everybody ends up, you know. And uh, we had a men's group in it that that met in a park, and it was a it was an interesting park. There was a lot of stuff going on in that park, and the smoke break. We were all outside the meeting. We were kind of looking out at the parking lot, and and there was a, a squad car in the parking lot, and they just busted some kid on dope, and they slammed him over the back trunk, and they wrenched his hands back, and they slammed on the on the handcuffs, and I kind of turned my head because, you know, that, that that noise of handcuffs, and I kind of went, ooh, and I looked down here, and there's like 20 guys going, <laughs> you know, that's what I love about Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Tell that story at a dinner party somewhere, and people kind of go, ooh, you know. <laughs> My life was unmanageable. I, I, the fact was that I could not not drink. You know what the real truth of the first meeting that I came to in Alcoholics Anonymous was that my life was over, but I was not going to die. And I never want to feel like that again as long as I live. So the first step was easy for me. The second step is that, that a power greater than me could restore me to sanity. And, and a power greater than me was a pretty scary leap for me because I'm a... I'm a recovering Catholic, and uh, um, and uh, I got no problem with that. I just uh, I just have found some other paths, and uh, um, so I I had trouble with God. I mean, the, my my spiritual consist condition consisted of those two alcoholic prayers. The first one is, "Dear God, get me out of this, and I will never do it again." And the second alcoholic prayer is, Whew. and. Uh, 
So I was not on great terms with God. As a matter of fact, I thought God was a jerk at that point in my life. And restore me to sanity. I mean, I was going to meetings in Hollywood. I mean, there were some seriously crazy people at those meetings. And I, you know, I was one of those nice upper middle class drunks. We don't go to funny farms. We don't do rubber rooms and paper slippers and no doorknobs on this side. We go to therapists and talk about stress. And they give us mood elevators. So I, you know, crazy was troubling, but uh, I managed to find a definition of a, in an old medical dictionary that enabled me to take the second step. The definition, it was in a big long thing, and it said, uh, part of it was this, and the, and the quote was, quote, a, a seeming inability to learn from one's mistakes. Medical definition of insanity. Let me run that by you one more time. A medical... <laughs> A seeming inability to learn from one's mistakes. I took the second step right there. My life was, my life was largely unexamined. As a, as a practicing alcoholic, my philosophy of life is a moving target is harder to hit. And, uh, and so I didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure out how I got into the particular trouble I was in. I was more interested in how I was going to get out of the trouble. And, uh, and so I kept getting into the same trouble over and over again. And then came the third step and the, and the third step is the big one for all of us because I, even in the early days of sobriety, I kind of looked around and I, and I didn't want to be one of those guys who was sober, just sober. I didn't want to be one of those guys who just didn't drink because I saw them in Alcoholics Anonymous. You can find them easily. The real miserable ones, you know, the real angry ones, the ones who were hitting on the new girls, you know, <laughs> the ones who were floating loans from people. You know, the, I, I didn't want to be one of those. I wanted to be somebody else. I just, the woman who 12-stepped me said, if, if you work these 12 steps, it'll be possible for you to take a 180-degree turn as a human being. And that was so dazzling to me that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous because I hated every square inch of myself, you know? What she failed to tell me was that you're required to make a 180-degree turn as a human being. But that was under the more will be revealed category. That's how the old-timers lie to you in Alcoholics Anonymous. They said... <laughs> They say more will be revealed. And uh, so fairly soon in this thing, we got to deal with this God stuff. Now, it doesn't matter what it is to you. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's Buddha or Allah or Allah or God or Jesus or, or anything. You get to call it anything you want. Uh, the fact is, is that, is that, is that Carl Jung talked about our condition and said, that, and, and he talked about it early in the, in the past century, that this was a hopeless condition. Alcoholism was absolutely hopeless unless the alcoholic himself had some kind of extraordinary spiritual experience. And, uh, and so all of us have got to embrace this idea of God as we understand God or we die. It's real simple. It may take us years to die, but we die. And, uh, and so I was faced with this kind of thing. And I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to God as I understand God. Now, my, my understanding of God was extremely diminished, and it doesn't matter what, the, what your understanding is either. I mean, it, it doesn't, you know, God, Jesus, Buddha, Allah, Awai, uh, you know, the force of nature, gravity, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's making a decision to pursue some kind of spiritual values, a spiritual way of life. Now, that third step seems like an awfully big one for all of us when we, when we hit it early because it seems like, oh, my God, i got to be spiritual. I mean, i got to be good. i got to be, you know, like a citizen. 
And that's not what it's about. What that is is a decision in the third step, and the decision in the third step is like this. If I decide to buy a house, I don't have the keys to the house. If I decide to buy a house, what I do is I buy a newspaper. And I open it up to the real estate section and I look at the ads and eventually I find somebody like a real estate broker and I go talk to him or her and we talk about what I can do and how much I can afford and, and then we go look at some houses and then I talk to like a bank and find out how much money I need and all that kind of stuff and eventually we find a house after, you know, some time and we make an offer and a counter offer and another offer and eventually we go into escrow and then we got loans and all kinds of stuff and then and eventually I get the keys to the house. But between the decision and the keys to the house, there's a whole lot of steps. And that's like it is in Alcoholics Anonymous. So the third step was that I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to God as I understand God. I made a decision to take a spiritual path. And the first part of that, if I'm going to take any kind of journey, is I've got to decide what I'm going to take with me and what I'm going to discard. And the only way you can possibly do that is you've got to look at what stuff you got. And so that's the fourth step. I looked at my stuff. I looked at my stuff like the big book talked about under fears, resentments, and relationship and sexual problems. And I, and I did that. My sponsor said, you've got three weeks to do a fourth step. And I didn't know you couldn't do that in three weeks, so I did it. And, uh, and so what I did was I spread out my stuff to this guy. And he said, this is what you need to keep. And this is what you need to let go of. You know? And so we started on the sixth and seventh step. That fifth step was extraordinary for me because it was the first time that I knew somebody who knew my whole story. I had bits and pieces out there. There were people who knew parts of it, but nobody knew it all. And, uh, and it was great because it was the first time I actually felt connected to somebody. It's that, that, that being isolated against an alien started to heal. You know, they, they, up where I'm from, there, there's this big thing that you take your fifth step with a priest or with somebody, you know, which is just, I thought that was a terrific, that's what I wanted to do. You know, I basically, I want, I want to do my fifth, I want to take a blind nun up the Amazon and, uh, and spill my guts and then shoot her, you know. Come back and say, oh, I've done my fifth step and I feel so much better and, and still nobody would have known me, you know, it would have been terrific, but that's not how it was. I did it with a guy that I'd known for about a month, and uh, and and what happened was my son, it was great. When, it, when that happens, the phone calls went from about a half an hour down to five minutes, you know, because I wasn't re-explaining all the problems. He had all the information, and then he did stuff like he'd say, "Now I want you to go over and talk to that guy because he's got a similar problem to you." And I'd say, "Wait a minute, did you tell him?" You know, see how knock off. You think that's interesting? I mean, do you think your life is interesting? Do you think your life is important? I mean, get your ass over there and help that guy. And so I go, yeah, here you got a problem, and he said, oh yeah, you too, oh yeah, and then, you know, we feel better. I'm responsible when the hand of AA reaches out. You know. And the sixth and seventh step was basically I looked at what, I, what I'd done, <laughs> and the seventh step is what I was unwilling to do, and... Uh, and I had to, I had to look at the man that, and that sixth and seventh step goes on and on and on. Let me tell you, I've had a, I've had a very rough five years, and, uh, and, and I, you know, I've had to re-examine myself on all kinds of levels. This, uh, this twelve-step stuff never stops. I've found, at least not in the first twenty-six years. If you're new, sorry to disappoint you, but it, it do go on, you know, and. Uh, 
I found out some interesting stuff. I found out, I found out that I'm greedy. I found out that I'm a really, I mean, just flat out boring greedy. You know, I mean, you can't even dress it up nice. Just, I just want a little more than my fair share. Actually, I like a lot more than my fair share. You know, and the way I dress it up is fear of financial insecurity. I mean, I won't say, I want more. What I say is, gee, maybe there's not enough. Gee, maybe we're going to go broke. Or, gee, I've got to work harder, you know, instead of, you know. And what I've had to look at is the fact that I'm just flat out grotesquely greedy. It's just... And man, saying that out loud just makes it so boring. You know, I tend to give up stuff. I tend to give up character defects and make kind of progress when I just get tired of being who I am. You know, when I can't even amuse myself with my defects of character. You know, when they no longer interest even me. Yeah. I think, out of hell with it, I might as well change, you know? God. <laughs> I used to be so fascinating. You know, complicated and sensitive and driven. I'm just greedy. Man, that really sucks. So then I did my eighth step. I wrote this big long list because he insisted, and then I read it to him, and he took some off and put some on, and and then I had to go out and actually do it. You know, I had to go, I had to go apologize. I mean, not apologize because I'm a world class apologizer. If there was a an Olympic event for apologizing, I'd get the gold medal. You know, I, you know, if I stole money and and went to apologize to you, you'd end up lending me more. You know, so I. What I had to do was I had to go talk to people about stuff that I had done and assure them that I put my life on a different kind of set of values and that I was going to alter that behavior and that they would get to observe the the uh, results of that. I said to my my sponsor, now how am I going to make amends to my wife and my parents and my family? And he said, you're going to get to do that by staying sober for a very, very long time because they are going to remain unimpressed with your progress. And that has certainly been true. So, by the, but the funny thing is, by the time you're halfway through that amends stuff, I started feeling better. I started feeling like a citizen. I started feeling like a member of a community. I started feeling like I was okay. I was starting to feel like I wasn't better than or worse than, you know? That better than or worse than thing is really awful, you know? Because I, I spent my life comparing me, myself to you and of course, I didn't have all the information on you. You just looked like you were doing better than me. That's all, you know, <clears throat> or worse than me, you know. But I, I never was equal to anybody until I'd done the ninth step, and and suddenly I started to be able to kind of walk among people. I started. It was interesting. It was really, really interesting. And uh, and then the tenth step comes along, and it's something that I do on a daily basis, and and that's that I look over my daily my day and I say what did I do today that I approve of and what did I do today that I don't approve of and uh, and the stuff that I don't approve of I set out to try and rectify the next day and and I let go of the whole mess at the end of the day Chuck C used to say we live our lives in 24-hour compartments we give up the victories and the defeats at the end of each day and I love that 
I love giving that out because I, man, if I had a victory, I strung it out, you know. I strung it out for weeks until it got real thin and old, you know. And if I had a defeat, man, I just beat the hell out of myself for days and days and days. And the idea of just letting it go has been wonderful to me. And then the 11th step comes along, and the 11th step is is a real commitment to uh, to this idea that I'm that I've got some principles, some spiritual principles, and uh, and looking deeper into that, and 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 kind of looking into a relationship with a a God that to this day baffles me. I mean, I got to tell you, I got no handle on this God thing. If you're you know <laughs> if you're waiting for for the secret of it. Forget it. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'm not even sure there is a secret. You know? You know, the, the thing about being an alcoholic is that, is that, is that that, that, that decision thing is a decision based on trust. It's not based on fact. You know? The, the, the problem with this thing is that there's not enough proof for a guy like me. You know, there's, there's simply not enough proof for me to act on anything. There's, there's actually not enough proof that I'm an alcoholic. You know, I could give myself 15 minutes and convince myself that I was probably a heavy social drinker, you know, who's kind of overdramatic about my problems. You know, and certainly there's no proof that the program works. If if this program worked 100%, nobody would ever get drunk again, you know? So maybe this thing doesn't work, you know? And there's no proof that, that there's a God. I mean, if there was a God, why, why would all this bad stuff happen? You <laughs> know? So what I gotta do is I gotta decide. I gotta come to believe. I gotta decide, okay, this is what I believe. Now if I die tomorrow and find out there's just this big blank eternity, I've had an incredible structure for 26 years that's enabled me to live a life that I've grown and matured and has been of some value to people in, in, in my life. And, and if that's it, that's enough. I mean, the being sober and the, and the moving toward the light is what's, what it's all about. And so on a daily basis, I do a little meditation thing. My meditation is basically I, I concentrate on the phrase, be still and know that I am God. And I was just talking to a new guy the other day about it, uh, teaching it to him because it's been the most wonderful one for me. And, and what I do is I get quiet and I, and I take that phrase and I break it down. And basically the way I break it down is I do it word by word. I sit in a comfortable chair and and I think about B. I just B. I listen to the sounds that are going on outside, my stomach gurgling, whatever is going, the television in the other room, just B. Just B. And then be still. I just stop moving. I just stop moving. Be still. Be still and know. And what I do is I open myself up. I just feel myself, my head opening, everything opening up. Be still and know. Know that I'm connected to you, that I'm connected to the earth, that I'm connected to the universe. I'm connected to everybody. Just know. Be still and know. Be still and know that I am. And what that is, is that's that, that's that inner voice. That's that intuition. That's that microchip of God within me. That's that thing they call the soul that the nuns taught me about. It identifies itself. Be still and know that I am. And then it tells me its name. Be still and know that I am God. And once I've done that, I feel kind of connected. And I go out about my life. And I've been doing that stuff for a lot of years. I've been active in service. I've been active in fellowship. I've been, I've sponsored people. I, uh, I've built a life. I've, I've, I've taken the tools. I've, I've, I've listened to you share. I've, I've watched you grow. 
Um, the reason I love to come to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and listen to you share is, is I can see the progress in me. I can, in you, I can't see it in me. I can never see the progress in me. But I can see it in you and I, I, and I, and I believe that if you're making, if you're making progress, then maybe I am. And so it's gone on for me and, and, uh, and it's been a remarkable journey. I gotta tell you something, uh, <laughs> this sobriety thing, uh, if you're new, Brace yourself, because uh, we don't promise you a, a journey, really. We, we talk about a journey. We promise you an adventure. <laughs> and a really great adventure has really terrific parts to it and really lousy parts to it. That's what makes it a great adventure. The stuff is, is that, you know, after I'd been sober for a long time, I thought that, that if you'd stay sober, you know, you'd gone to enough meetings, you'd spoken at enough conferences, you sponsored enough guys, you know, you'd done all that kind of stuff that eventually you might reach this kind of plateau, you know, where you get to quit a little, you know, where you get to kick back and relax, you know, after you've done enough 12-step work and done enough sponsorship, you can kind of lie back, you know, just, you know, coast for a while, and uh, I haven't hit any plateaus yet, I've got to tell you. I've had a five years lately that... Um, that's been incredible, and uh, and I just want to share it with you because if there's some of you out there who've got some sobriety in your, under your belt and and you're going through a <laughs> a long dark night of the soul and you're thinking what's wrong with me, you know why aren't why isn't my life going well? Um, I got to tell you, I was one of those guys, and uh, and I and I, you know I used to I come to these conventions and some guys get up here and say you know you know. I went to, you know, I went to death row and, and then I got sober and, and now my life is a piece of cake, you know? And I'd say, me and what's wrong with me? You know, I'm dancing as fast as I can and my ass is falling off. And, uh, <laughs> and so I, 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 I just want to kind of lay out this last five years for you to, to let you know that, that after the long night of the soul, there's a dawning. There's light that starts to come through, and and it's starting to come through for me. And uh, you know, I really thought uh, I really thought while I was going through all this stuff that I should have been doing better than I was. I've been sober for a long time, and you know, I really should be doing better than I was. But the fact is, is that I was doing as well as I could given the circumstances, because life happens. Uh, and uh, I I I had some I had some some business stuff, a, a, a really god-awful business failure that, uh, that, uh, that put our, our, uh, our family in some real financial jeopardy, and it was, and it was, and, and, and I took it upon myself to fix the problem. I didn't want to disturb, you know, Bonnie and, the, and, and Kate, my daughter, just, I wanted to handle this, and what I was going to do was I was going to solve the problem and then, and then tell them what the problem was and how I had solved it, and what happened is the problem kept getting worse. And I kept trying to fix it, and I didn't want to scare them, and uh, and I took it all on myself, and and eventually it blew up in my face, and uh, and we had to make some really, really fast uh, financial moves, and 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 move out of a big house into a smaller place, and 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 it was a really really tough time, and and then I started looking for work, and uh, and I was in my in my uh, my early fifties, and uh, you know they're not hiring guys like me there. They're retiring guys like me, and 
And so I kept going up, you know, going on job interviews with guys sitting across the desk whose, whose skin hasn't cleared up yet. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and they're thinking, why do I want to hire my father? And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know. And I kept trying to put businesses together and put situations together and they kept blowing up in my face and I'd get up every morning and I'd shower and I'd shave and I'd go into my little office and I'd start working and getting those resumes out and, and doing all the work and it kept getting worse and worse and worse and my family was, 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 was having a hard, hard time and, 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 and I started, it, it, it just, it just really got terrible and, uh, and I was trying as hard as I could, and uh, and 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 also I started having some physical problems, and 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 my my mother was I, my father had died years ago, but my mother we put in a home, and and she was she was she was hard, she was she was really hard to be with. She was old, and she was she she used to drive me crazy because she'd become incredibly self-centered when when old people are not feeling well all the time. Their whole life is about themselves and about feeling better or not feeling well, and and her whole life just kind of imploded on her, and she just drove me crazy. And and what it did was it connected to my alcoholism, you know, that kind of selfishness. Just, you know, the only people that I really react to are the ones who publicly demonstrate my defects of character, you know. And she was just flat out selfish, and I just, oh man, you know. And I kept trying to be okay. You know, I I went I went to see her one Sunday, and I said, and she said nobody's been here to see me all week and I said mom I was here on Wednesday and she said oh you you know you know and I, I, I was just trying to do the best I could you know I'd made I'd made a decision as a, as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous that she had taken care of me the first 18 years of my life and I was going to take care of her the last 18 years of her of her life and uh, and this year it all kind of it all kind of reached a crescendo and and uh, and um, uh, I had I had gone to work for Alcoholics Anonymous. I had become a, <laughs> a, a special worker for Alcoholics Anonymous. I became the manager of uh, of our intergroup office in in Vancouver. And uh, a special worker in Alcoholics Anonymous sometimes is like being a a Korean comfort woman. It, it was uh, um, it was it was it was an ex- extraordinary uh, 15 months that ended in in in, in a, a really horrible vicious way it was just awful and uh um and i i I was struggling to find work and and um my uh my my mother died in february and uh and i got a job uh and and uh and and the thing with central office was settled on in 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 my favor and and there was some legal other legal stuff going on and 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 i mean i just I finally went to my doctor and I said, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm having a hard time. I'm putting on weight and I can't sleep or I'm sleeping too much. And, and I told him what was going on and he said, you have a classic, uh, uh, classic symptoms of, of, of severe depression. And I said, oh man, you know, and he, I said, what do I do? And I got this great doctor. He's Thai and, uh, he's from Thailand. And, and so he's always willing to look at alternative stuff. And he said, well, you know, there's medication for it. And I said, doc, I don't want to live my life inside a helium balloon. You know, I just let, let's 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 see what other alternatives there are. And he said, "Well, let's take some blood." So he did some blood, and 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 this is the incredible thing about about being sober and being willing to look. And 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 I surrendered to whatever I had to do. And he he came back and he said, 
you have absolutely no serotonin in your system. And serotonin is the, is the thing that we produce that gives us pleasure. I mean, I finally had this great job, and I had this great job because I was in my mid-50s. They wanted somebody exactly like me and my age and everything else, and there wasn't any joy in it. I didn't feel relieved, nothing. I just thought, oh, God, you know. And he said, uh, your body isn't producing any serotonin. He said, you've been working so hard for so long to be okay, you've just burnt it out of you. And I said, what do we do? And he said, you're going to take a lot of B12 and some St. John's wort, and we're going to get you back. And uh, and so we started doing that. And uh, and within a couple of weeks, I started feeling better. And uh, and thank God I was willing to willing to do that, you know, to try that. And uh, and then I went I went and uh, I'd, I'd had some trouble with my ear, and uh, I I had burned it. It had gotten sunburned, and the scab had never healed. And my my dermatologist sent me to the cancer clinic, and the uh, you know I'm sitting there and. In, in this little gown and, you know, and, and the, these six doctors come in and they look at me and then they all go out of the room and then one of them came in and said, well, here's, uh, here's what we've, uh, we found and this is what we want to do. He said, uh, we can, uh, we can remove, uh, 90% of your, uh, of your right ear and, uh, and a good deal of the skin and, and hair around it, um, uh, or we can do, uh, 15 radiation treatments. And uh, I said, uh, there's six of you and one of me. How much does my vote count? And um, I said, you know, wh- why don't we stick my head in the microwave 15 times and see what happens? And uh, and he said, well, if we do have to do the surgery, we can. Uh, w- what we'll do is is we'll take a we'll take a mold of your ear because we can make a prosthesis that will attach to your skull with magnets. I said, oh, gee, doc, you're. Ch- you're just making my whole day. I said, you know, what do I do at the end of the day? Do I take my ear off and stick it on the fridge? Is that is that how this goes? Yeah. With a note saying, don't forget to pick up the dry cleaning, you know. And then, you know, the wonderful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is we have this bizarre sense of humor. I started to laugh. He said, what are you laughing at? I said, well, you know, you know, I could get different kinds of ears. You know, I could, I could get one with jewelry in it, you know. I said, I could get like a Spock ear. That'd be kind of fun, you know. I said, you know, and, and when Bonnie's, Bonnie's at me, I can just take off the ear and say, here, talking to this, I'm going to take a nap. Yeah. Our black humor gets us through more stuff, you know. So then I went and did the radiation thing, you know, and oh, it was wonderful. I mean, I had an ear that looked like hamburger was oozing it. It pulsated. I mean, it was just luscious, you know. And then, uh, and then I got an infection in it, and uh, and so it looked like they were going to have to do the thing, you know. And it really hit me. It really, it really hit, and it and it uh, it scared me. And uh, and I said, you know, God, I really think you're an asshole about this thing. And uh, you know, I know you're doing a lot of good work for the universe, but man, you're sure screwing me over on this thing. And uh, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd really, you know, can you work with me on this thing, God? You know, I just, you know, I'm not gonna make, I'm, I'm not gonna make any promises. You know, I'm, I'm just gonna do the best I can. But, you know, if, if you got time, I know you're busy, you know, in Africa. But if you got time, you know, could you kind of shoot something my way? So I went to see the dermatologist, and she looked at it, and she said, you know what? It's healing, but it's real slow. Um, and I went back to the cancer clinic, and they said, we got the tumor, and it's healing real slow. It's going to take a long time. So I get to keep my little pink shell-like right ear, and I'm, I'm real pleased with that because it's 
one of my better features, I think. Don't you? <laughs> and Bonnie and I have had a rough time lately. You know, we've we've had a real rough time. Where she's got a stressful job, I've got a, you know I've got this new job, and and we're we're we're, we're kind of coming out of this this financial thing, and and it's been a long hard road for us, and uh, and. Uh, and we 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 keep reaching out to each other and and not quite touching at times and and uh, and she's working an Al-Anon program real hard and and I'm working a an AA program as hard as I can. I've 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 had a lot of trouble. This this thing with with uh, the intergroup office in in Vancouver has caused a lot of kind of animosity and and it's been very hard for me to kind of get back to meetings and. Uh, but I've never stopped going to my home group and 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 talking to my sponsor. And uh, I got a sponsor, you know. I'm huh, I'm 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 almost 27 years sober, and I got a sponsor. I got a sponsor that I talk to, and and a, and a sponsor who gives me uh, direction and advice, and I, and and I uh, I listen to it. Um, and uh, and I'm, I. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes the fellowship isn't there for you, um, and that's uh, that's real frightening for us. Um, sometimes it's just you and your God, and uh, and if you haven't done the work, you know, if you haven't done the work, and you're out there at the end end of the tether without a God, I don't know how you hang on. Um, I've been hanging on by by yelling and and screaming and 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 talking to the God that I understand. And and the God that I understand is an extremely gentle God. Always in retrospect. And looking back, I can always see how it's all supposed to work out, you know. Looking forward, I haven't got a clue where I'm going. All I know is that is that uh Bonnie and I live together and share the same bed and and uh and my eighteen year old daughter is is a fabulous human being, and I got a great job, and I uh, and I've got a life. I've lived way beyond my expectancy. Evar's uh, Evar's got a a scholarship to an American university to play football, and uh, and he hanged himself as a freshman in college because he couldn't drink, he couldn't kick an alcohol and drug problem. Uh, Danny got a scholarship to a big university, um, but he dropped out and and took a government job in in our hometown. He came back to our hometown and took some low expectancy government job and bought himself a motorcycle. And uh, 20 years ago, his his fellow workers took up a petition at the office uh, that they handed in to the management about. Um, about his personal hygiene and the way he smelled at work. Um, about a month after that, he drove his motorcycle into a brick wall. Uh, they said it was an accident, but but he'd been driving motor he'd been riding motorcycles for years and years and years. About 15 years ago, um, Lou, who didn't need to drink, um, died of liver and kidney failure. Um, he, the, the morphine couldn't help the pain, and he just kind of died whimpering. And uh, 
And I'm here in Las Vegas with a, with a bunch of people that I love, uh, with an enthusiasm for life who are, who are willing to, uh, to be there for other people and, uh, and who honor me by, by asking me to share my experience, strength, and hope. No matter how my life has gone, whether it be in victory or defeat, or whether in good times or bad times, I always return to you to report to you how I'm doing because you're my teachers. I have never been able to be taught by anybody but you. I went to all those moral superiors. I went to all those people to try and learn what was wrong with me. But I came here and you said, you said the phrase that enabled me to, to start to live again. You said, I know how you feel. No one had ever said that to me. And whenever, whenever anybody says that, the anxiety dampens down enough that I can listen to the instructions. But you gotta say, I know how you feel first. Then I know I'm safe and I know I'm home. And you've done that for almost 27 years. You told me to keep coming back. You told me to take things one day at a time. You told me about easy does it and you told me about first things first. And, and I've listened enough to do them when I was in trouble and, and when I wasn't in trouble. So I stand here before a group of my teachers to report on my condition and you get to evaluate how I'm doing and if you're going to judge me, be gentle. I, I realize I have a long, long way to go. But because of your love and your help and your concern, I have come so far and I am so grateful. God bless you.